Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day. This week, I am joined by Dr. Irving Hexham. Irving is Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Calgary in Canada, and among many other things, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. He's conducted extensive research on a variety of topics, including world religions, cults, nationalism and religion, and new religious movements. Irving has written over two dozen books, many which are used by universities, seminaries, and teaching institutions around the world. Irving is a devoted Christ follower, and his latest book is entitled Encountering World Religions, which equips Christ followers to really better understand the beliefs and practices of their neighbors so they can interact with them in ways that are faithful, gracious, and fruitful. On this week's episode, Irving and I discuss why understanding the history of the spread of Christianity is really critical for 21st century ministry. There's a lot of connectivity there. Irving also touches on issues like Islamophobia and yoga. We also provide some practical advice on helping your church engage with people of other faith traditions. Such great information from a world-class professor. I now invite you to join me in my conversation with Dr. Irving Hexham. Irving, thank you for joining us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome, my friend. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm very pleased to have been invited. Yes. Now, we are going to um, have what I think is going to be a very intriguing conversation and um, you are the man to 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 be talking to um, when it comes to this idea of other faiths, world religions, and how can we as Christ followers and how can we as pastors and ministry leaders help equip our people um, to really engage in conversations and relationships with people who come from different faith backgrounds. So I'm, I'm very excited. One of the things that that you have written about in uh, one of your newest books, Encountering World Religions, is that we're really kind of living in a world that is much, much like uh, first century A.D. And can you talk to us a little bit about how uh, we, you know, in the U.S. and in Canada, how we're kind of experiencing a world that looks very much like what we're reading about in the New Testament? Yes, well, I think what one's got to do is look at the uh, statistics, and there are lots of them, and one sees a steady decline of Christianity in North America. Uh, in the United States, for example, in 2007, 78% of the population claimed to be active Christians. Uh, in 2012, it was 73%, and my guess is now it's about 68%. Um, similarly, you get a decline like this, slightly sharper in Canada, fewer people are committed. Um, if you go from these statistics, though, to Europe, you see that there are very few Christians around, or at least there are very few people who profess to be Christians. Now, one's got to um, counter this a little bit and point out that there are some prominent Christians in um, social and political life in Europe, but on the whole, at the grassroots, very few people profess to be Christians anymore. And what one's seeing uh, across the um, Western world is the rise of alternate religions. And many of these began, I suppose, in the 60s with the rise of what people called cults, but 
it's moved on a long way from that. And what it is, is people who have never been Christians. You've got a large number of immigrants coming in to North America and much larger in Europe who belong to different religious traditions like Sikhs and Hindus and also uh, Buddhists. And the Buddhist numbers are more complicated than the others because many Americans have converted to Buddhism. So the Buddhist figures are a little bit uh, skewed in that respect. And also many of the people who on the surveys claim to be um, unaffiliated would affiliate with some form of yoga practice or uh, Buddhist belief. So th there are these changes taking place. And this means that we're in a situation that St. Paul was in, or at least we're rapidly getting there, mm -hmm. where you have the altar to the unknown God. And uh, Paul faced a situation, and the early Christians faced a situation, where the majority of people were not Christians, and you couldn't assume that they knew anything about the Bible. Um, to give you an example, uh, 25 years ago, I could uh, go into a class and I could talk, I'm talking about Christianity, I could mention Mary and Joseph and things like this. And um, suddenly I discovered uh, that there were people in the class who didn't know who on earth Mary was. I, I remember, and again, I say this is about 25 years ago, a group of students came up to me, about four of them, and one of the girls very sheepishly said, and she was a Canadian, she wasn't an immigrant, right. uh, she, her family were old Canadians, and she said, uh, who's this Mary you're talking about? Mm. I don't know. And uh, this is the same thing. I've got a, a Buddhist colleague who works in the same department as me, he's a practicing Buddhist, and he's complained about exactly the same thing. He said... You know, this is terrible because when I teach Buddhism even, you've got to mention Christianity and nobody knows what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think there is a real crisis um, that's certainly seen in the universities. Now, Canada is more advanced than America. And um, in my classes now, I would say, and this is disproportionate to the number of immigrants in the population, but in classes at the University of Calgary, I would have maybe quarter of the class might be Muslim or Sikh, um, a few Hindus, and the others, most of them are um, unaffiliated or, or agnostic. Some are um, committed atheists, but those are a very small group. Um, the majority are just sort of floating along, and you have a very small group of Christians. Christians are that in the minority. When I first came to Calgary over 30 years ago, the majority of students in religious studies classes, at least, were Christians. So things have changed very drastically. Wow. And you get the same sort of thing going on uh, in other English-speaking countries. Yes, it's really fascinating, the diversity that we're seeing. And Irving, I'd like to dig in a little more on this idea of immigration uh, because we have so many people with different faith backgrounds moving in to uh, cities and into even smaller towns. And one of the things that you, I think, have done very well in your book, Encountering World Religions, is not only giving us some background information on each of the different religions, but then you also go a step further. And, and I've got to say, I've read lots of different books on comparative religion, and 
this is the first I've read that really goes that extra step and helps us think through uh, how we could be prepared from a Christian perspective to not only be aware of these other religions, but then build these relationships, engage in conversations that are gracious and are fruitful. So I'd love if you would just share with us a bit more about what that can look like in our relationships in our communities. Yes, and uh, here I must say that oh, I must give credit at least to the influence of Francis Schaeffer and Labrie because in the 60s I spent some time at Labrie and um, that was shortly after I'd become a Christian. And what I learned from them was the importance of the person. Mm. And I think one's got to uh, take this very seriously. Uh, Schaefer used to talk about the mannishness of man. With I think today that's probably politically incorrect. It's the humanness <laughs> of humans. Right, right. But uh, what we've got are people like ourselves who, for one reason or another, uh, usually people who are really committed to the other world religions, the major world religions, are people who've been born into those traditions. And um, when you get to know them, many of them are very nice people. Um, I think, for example, when one thinks about Islam, I think there are many worrying things about Islam as a movement and the political developments of Islam today. But um, if you know a Muslim, the majority are very nice people. Um, the best neighbor I've ever had, I keep telling my classes this, uh, was a man, Ishmael. And uh, he was a South African Muslim. He was from the uh, colored community in South Africa. That's people who were of mixed race. Um, and uh, his parents had come to South Africa from India as Muslims. And he was a Muslim. But he had eventually left South Africa. He was really a super person, very nice indeed, and very helpful. But, you know, he was a Muslim, and therefore one's got to come to terms with this. And uh, I remember Ishmael telling me that he'd actually gone to a Christian mission school in South Africa, and uh, he passed, the, everybody had got to take a course on the catechism and Christian beliefs, and he passed it with flying colors. But the missionaries wouldn't give him a certificate to say he'd done it. Hmm. And he was really hurt by that. Um, and so I think it's things like this that we've got to take into account. And so the first step in approaching people of another faith um, is where and when do you meet them? I mean, you know, if, you, if they're your neighbors, it's obviously going to be different from if they're your workers or if they're just someone you happen to meet. But what one's got to do is to get to know them. And that's going to take a long time. And this is what I really learned from Labrie. Um, before I went to Labrie, I'd been to the Billy Graham Crusade in Manchester. And, uh, you know, the emphasis was on counseling classes and conversion. And once someone was converted, they'd been to the crusade. They got to be uh, helped join a church and all this sort of thing. It all had to happen. And you've got to follow up. I remember them uh, always talking about following up. I think it was Dan Pyatt used to talk about the follow-up on uh, the Crusades work. And at Labrie, when I first went, I was shocked because they had no concept of follow-up. Uh, and when I talked to them about this and talked to Schaefer about it, he said, God's in charge. God will do the follow-up. We've got to befriend the people, 
be ready for them when they come to us. Uh, we don't force them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first I thought, I, I was very much of a mixed mind about this. But eventually, I, over time, I saw that this really worked. There were people who returned to Libri years later, or years later would say, I started on my path to become a Christian by going to Libri, even if the people at Libri didn't know about it. So I think one's got to take that approach, that if you look at the Bible, um, the New Testament conversions, there are sudden conversions like those of St. Paul. But St. Paul was a Jew. He knew the Old Testament well. And so were most of the Jews of the time. They were trained in the Old Testament. And when they converted to Christianity, uh, in some ways it was relatively easy for them because they brought this understanding of creation. God is the creator. There's a fall. Now, Jewish views of the fall are different to Christian ones, but still they recognized there was a fall and there was sin in the world. And there was a need for redemption. Most importantly, they looked for redemption and for um, a savior figure. Uh, They were looking for a messiah. So it was easy to talk into that world in a sense. But when you come to the pagans, it's very different. Um, most of the stories of pagan conversion in the New Testament seem to be of people that were converted over a long period of time or who were uh, on the edge of Judaism. There were people who were attracted to Judaism, like the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading scripture when he was met by Stephen, and uh, he was then baptized. And he went back to Ethiopia, where there were a lot of people who were um, either Jewish or people on the edge of Judaism. They were familiar with the scriptures. They were attracted to Judaism, but there were some things that didn't quite fit. And then they became Christian, and Ethiopia became a leading center of Christianity in Africa. So I think we've got to take this long-term approach. We've got to take a long view uh, about conversion and not expect... Um, miracles. Now, miracles do happen, and some people are converted, they hear the gospel, and they immediately convert, but many people take a long time, and I think one of the failures of the evangelical tradition has been to stress the instant conversion and forget about the long-term conversion. Um, I, this isn't saying that the instant conversion isn't important, it is, and it happens. It's very important. But on the other hand, there are also many people who take a long time to convert. Uh, Now, if you look at the history of Christianity, and there's um, a wonderful book, which in America it's called... um, What's it called in America? It's um, Barbarian Conversion by Richard Fletcher. Mm -hmm. In Britain, it's called The Conversion of Europe in the British edition. And this book by Fletcher traces the first thousand years or so of Christianity. And he particularly spends time on the conversion of Northern Europe and how it took place. And he points out, and Fletcher was a Christian, um, he points out that the conversion in some instances was very rapid. A missionary went into an area and people responded to the gospel right away. In other places, it took years before anybody was converted, very long periods of time. He also points out that a lot of conversion, in, particularly in the case of the English, but this happened in other places in Europe, 
was by rulers who were converted. They became Christian, their lands became Christian. And then there were Christian kings around them, and often either the king married the daughter of one of these other rulers, or the son married the daughter of the pagan. And they moved into these pagan kingdoms as Christians on the condition that they could take a priest with them, they could pray, they could practice Christianity, but the kingdom remained uh, pagan. And then over a relatively short time, these kingdoms became Christian. And a lot of secular historians say, yeah, well, this was just uh, politics, you know, this this is real politics. Right. You pretend to be a Christian, you, you give in, the, the ruler becomes sort of a Christian, the lands are Christian, but they're not really Christian, you know, under the surface, they're all pagan. Um, Fletcher points out that shortly after these events happened, this is in the 7th century, um, there were a series of wars and invasions by Vikings and others, and these kings and princes and their people died for their Christian faith, mm -hmm. and they had the opportunity to renounce it, but they died. And so he says, look, you can't say this was just a matter of convenience. Right. Christianity really took hold because these people were prepared to lay down their lives for their faith. And that's something historians have overlooked. So I think this is a great book, and I think it's an important lesson that one's got to look at how people become Christians. And there are many different ways that people become Christian over time. And we've got to take that into account, and we've got to recognize that the slow, long conversion can be very real and uh, have patience. And we've got to, above all, and this is the most important thing, we've got to trust God. Right. God knows what he's doing. And, uh, you know, we've got to live as Christians, and by our example, draw other people to the faith. Yeah. Um, I, I think that oftentimes we try to replace the work of the Spirit with strategy. And not that there's anything wrong with strategy, but, but rather than um, developing relationship um, extending, you know, the hope and the love and the compassion of Christ in a relationship to a coworker or a neighbor or someone else. Um, sometimes we, we, we get caught up in overlooking the relationship and really looking for some strategy to convert somebody. Um, yeah, but, but what you're I saying agree. is historically the most effective way to really share Christ with someone in such a way that it's life-transforming is to build that relationship, um, see the person as a person and not as, you know, an object or a target or whatever you might, word you might want to use, but see them as a person and prayerfully allow the Holy Spirit to do the work that, that God does, right? Yes. Now, I think here the theology is important because the Bible clearly t teaches that we're all created in the image of God. And right. it's this image of God in human beings that is our point of contact. And I think, um, and here I saw a Facebook post the other week, last week, um, where someone was complaining about um, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, 19th century theologian, who talked about common grace. He said that, you know, God works among Christians and non-Christians, 
and that you can't assume everything a non-Christian does is bad. And this person was saying, well, of course, everything a non-Christian does is bad. They're sinners, blah, blah. Uh, but Kuiper had, a, I think, the right view, mm-hmm. that the Holy Spirit works in everybody, even people who may do great evil. The Spirit restrains them, and without God's restraint, the world will be total chaos. So God is working in the world, and we've got to recognize that, and we may not see how. And again, uh, church history is so very important, because one sees in church history again and again, and to go back to the English example, I mean, the Northern English, and I come from the North of England, uh, were converted to Christianity on about three different occasions. And in each occasion, in the first started with the Roman legions, and Roman legions brought Christianity with them, and we know this from the archaeology. Increasingly, it's very clear there was a large Christian movement. But then it was wiped out. Uh, invaders came, <laughs> and uh, the Vikings and the Danes and different people came in, and they were pagans, and they killed off the Christians, and they destroyed Christianity. But then it bounced back. And over time, these people again became Christian. And, uh, or these people became Christian. There was, there was intermarriage and all sorts of things happened at these times. But Christianity won out in the end. But if one reads a book like um, The Venerable Bede, and he was a mm-hmm. British church uh, leader and writer uh, who wrote wonderful commentaries on the Bible, Bede um, lived at a time where everything looked bleak. It was the, 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 everything was collapsing around him. Uh, the Vikings were coming in and invading. The um, churches were being burned. Christians were being killed. Um, after, he was, after he died, uh, the monks took his remains from the abbey who was at Jarrow and moved to the more fortified uh, abbey in Rip, not in Ripon, in Durham. And his remains were placed there because they venerated his remains. Now, as evangelicals, we don't believe in venerating people's remains. But nevertheless, it tells a very powerful story that these people thought almost everything was lost. But then the invaders became Christian. Wow. And I think that's a a very important lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's – I love that because – you know, we, we apply that to a context here in North America, the U.S. or in Canada, and, and we think of – because oftentimes the reality is – I mean, we hear this um, rhetoric in, in the news. We see it on Facebook or, or wherever else that actually what you just said, the whole invader thought, like that, that there are those um, from other countries, other faith systems who are invading our land. And, and not that they're coming in with swords but that they're coming in and just trying to make their way into our land. And, and so a lot of people are wrestling through that. And in fact, you touch a little bit on uh, Islamophobia even in, in your book. And, and I was wondering, can you talk to us a little bit about how, how do we as pastors and ministry leaders ourselves and then also help our people navigate these, these feelings of Islamophobia and those types of things, which actually kind of fly in the face of the mission of God? Yeah, I think this is very complicated because— One's got to admit, and I think often this is overlooked, that there are all sorts of um, political issues and social issues involved um, and economic issues. There's a book, uh, The Bottom Billion, I think it's called, about the economics of the world. And it shows that there's no way the West can take in all the refugees from everywhere. I mean, there are over 100 million refugees in Africa 
And if you took them into a country like Germany, it would just swamp the country and uh, the industry would collapse. So one's got to have some sort of program for admitting people into any country. I think countries have to have their own sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people go overboard wanting to let everybody in. And if you talk about letting everybody in, that's going to create chaos and your own social basis will collapse, your, economic, your economy will collapse. So that's a difficult issue. But on the other hand, when people are here and we should be, what we should be doing is what they used to try to do in the 50s. It didn't work terribly well for all sorts of reasons. But it's in the 50s and 60s, the big emphasis was on development of other parts of the world. Mm. And I think we've got to get back to that. We've got to develop the economies of Africa and parts of Asia that have not developed. And uh, other parts of the world where, where you've got people living in poverty, we've got to help them. But that doesn't necessarily bring them to our country so that they flood the job market and wages go down and things like this. So it's a balance. Um, But for those people who are here, I think we've got to, I think one's got to be very careful, particularly with Islam. Islam is the only religion um, of the world religions that was really founded by a man who was a statesman and he was also a brilliant general and one's got to admit this he he was absolutely brilliant in his military strategies but that means that um islam is also closely tied to religion and politics Mm. and with it you have for many muslims the core of islam is sharia law now we've got to have some honest debates about the meaning of Sharia law and not just brush it aside and what it would mean to allow it in our own countries. And personally, I think that would be that would be a step towards Islamicization if we allow Sharia law. Um, but on the other hand, one's got to recognize at the same time that our own law is in a mess and um, many of the things that Muslims object to uh, are things that we can agree with. Um, They don't like a lot of the um, promiscuity of our society. They don't like a lot of the advertising of sex and things like this. Mm -hmm. And those are things that most Christians can agree on with Muslims. So we've got to be very careful on um, this issue. And we've got to try to understand clearly what their meaning and what alternatives there might be to um, <clears throat> imposing Sharia law, because I think Sharia law has certain restrictions on people who are not Christians. Well, I just think it has, that Muslims are privileged under Sharia law. So that's got to be debated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've not got to get worried about it. Now, I think Islamophobia is a two-edged sword, because on the one hand, there is certainly often prejudiced against Muslims as people. And that, if you mean by Islamophobia that, that's bad. Christians ought not to be prejudiced against Muslims. They should see the person as the person Mm -hmm. and treat them as a person. Um, On the other hand, there are Muslim, Muslim groups that use Islamophobia as a foil to, um, do and say anything they want. And I think they overplay their hand. And instead of addressing real issues, they try to 
silence everybody else. So I think there's got to be real debate on these issues with Muslims. Um, and there are many Muslims. You, you've got people in Canada who recognize this, that, that there needs to be a, a major debate. And it's very often the more sort of liberal type of um, North American, a traditional North American, who sort of says, oh, well, everything's acceptable. We can take this in. Well, we can't. There are things that are specific to our society that we want to preserve. And uh, we've got to decide what they, they are. Uh, we've got a prime minister in Canada who says there's no such thing as a Canadian. Well, you know, personally, I think that's nonsense. There are certain things in Canada that are shared values. And I think we have a lot of shared values with most immigrants. And many of the immigrants coming into America are, um, as I understand it, and I, I'm not an American, are people from Latin America uh, with Christian backgrounds, and those that I've met at least, and we get them in Canada too, are usually very devout Christians, and many of them move from Catholicism into Pentecostal churches and become Protestants. Um, so that there are changes going on, and the Catholic Church has changed over the last 30 years incredibly, um, so that you get many Catholic um, preachers who do preach the gospel. I, I know this might shock some evangelicals, <laughs> but there's, there's no doubt. I've heard the, them preach and preach very good sermons. So one's got to be very, very careful on these things. And um, what we've got to do is look to God for guidance on, on all of them and yeah. try to develop a Christian perspective that is based on Scripture and not just our own fears. Yeah, that's good. That's good. What would you say, Irving, to a pastor, if you're just sitting over a cup of coffee, and he said, you know, I, I'm really trying to help our people be more open to engaging people from different faith backgrounds, whether it's uh, uh, Muslims or Hindus, Buddhists, or, you know, we have many um, African uh, refugees and immigrants who, who bring kind of more of a traditional African uh, religion with them. But the pastor is really struggling with how to help his people not become insular, but to really um, look at it as opportunity. What would what what practical advice would you give a pastor who's struggling with that? Yeah, well, I think the first thing, um, and this sounds biased because I'm a professor, the first thing is education. Yeah, we've got to educate both pastors and our congregations about. Christianity in the first instance, because there's a lot of lack of knowledge of church history and of Christian uh, beliefs. So we've got to teach Christianity very clearly, uh, and then we've got to teach them about other religions. And years ago, um, there's a very famous American sociologist, Robert Bella, and he did a study of students at the University of California in Berkeley, and he pointed out that students who very often came from strong Christian backgrounds, and they took a few courses in religious studies, world religions. They may not have lost their faith, but at least their faith was weakened because of that experience. They became, began to have all sorts of doubts. And so he said, you know, basically religious studies encourages loss of faith. <laughs> um, and I think there is truth to that, but only at the superficial level. And I think this is what pastors and the laity need to understand. When you really get into other world religions, they are 
very different from Christianity in many ways. You don't really have a common uh, religious base that everyone believes the same thing. And to give it the, the starkest example, and I know a lot of people love Buddhism, but um, Buddhism teaches that there is no such thing as a person. There is no self. And I think most people who, North Americans who pretend to practice Buddhism, believe that they do it because it, in, it increases their self. It gives them a, a better sense of self-worth and all sorts of things like this, which are totally opposed to Buddhist teaching. And so I think one's got to really get into the depths of the religions, and one's not got to be afraid of it. I think what happens with many Christians is they look at another religion and they're afraid of digging into it mm -hmm. because they might lose their own faith. Mm. And this, unfortunately, I think is something which developed in the 20th century. In the 19th century, what amazes me, and I've got colleagues who are not Christians, they're Hindu and they're Buddhist and things, and they will say, if you look at the Christian writings about religion in China, for example, or religion in India in the 19th century, many of the Christian writers did a superb job in talking about these religions and really understood them and presented a Christian alternative. But somehow, I think really the First World War was the turning point. A whole generation of uh, scholars and people were wiped out in the trenches. And that changed Christianity into a much more defensive mode. And people stopped doing the scholarship. I mean, there's, a, there's the growth of religious studies and comparative religion. But in many ways, the depth has gone compared with some of the things written in the 19th century. So I think we've got to get back to very serious study of these religions, but we've also got to um, have a strong faith ourselves. Now, obviously, and I think this has got to be made very clear, we can't expect everybody to be an expert on Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam right. or Judaism or whatever. Um, but I think we can have people in our Christian communities who do take these things seriously and study them well. And we can at least develop the consciousness that there's nothing to be afraid of in studying these religions. Studying one of these world religions or knowing a Buddhist or knowing a Hindu is not going to cause you to lose your faith if you've got a real faith. And knowing about their religions may well strengthen your religion because when one realizes there's this contradiction in Buddhism, about the self, because in practice, many Buddhists love their wives. Well, how can you love a non-entity? I mean, you know, their wife doesn't really exist. It's, their, their wife's a, a sort of phenomena, uh, the conglomeration of atoms, but there's not a person there. But they love them, and they love their children. Uh, so I think we've got to very gently point out things like that to them, and to know, it, to know enough about the religion to be able to make suggestions. Mm -hmm. But... Like most Christians, the majority of Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and whatever, Sikhs in North America, don't really know their religion very well. I mean, most people are like the either nominal or even some uh, very regular churchgoers. Uh, they've got a fairly superficial understanding of their own religion. Right. And so one's got to take that into account and uh, what your neighbor tells you that 
Sikhism is about isn't necessarily what Sikhism is about if it's a Sikh neighbor. Um, it may be something very different um, in the religion itself, and the same goes for Islam and for Buddhism and things like this. So in the first instance, one's get to, got to get to know the person. And then I think at some point, usually um, after years, the question of, you know, well, you know, what do you really, why, why don't you accept my beliefs? Uh, what do you really believe yourself? Questions like this come up. And at that point, I think we can talk to people about our own faith and present it to them. That's why we need to have a very good understanding of Christianity. Because right. one of the things people will bring up is, well, what do you mean by three gods? Why do you worship three gods? And if you don't know something about the Trinity and the right. doctrine yeah. of the Trinity, you're lost. Yeah. How can Jesus be God and man? So Jesus was a God just like Zeus was a God. Uh, no. Um, and, you know, yeah. one's got to be able to answer these things. So it's hard work. But I think pastors can begin to train themselves in this, and I think in some ways it will enrich their understanding of Christianity. We've got to be very, very careful how we approach people in other religions and not be overwhelmed and frightened by them. Irving, I really appreciated how you not only give background on these different world religions, but then you show how Christianity often intersects with these religions, which gives us a starting point for engaging in conversation with someone from a different faith. Can you talk to us a bit about how we can incorporate that in those conversations? I mean, this takes a lot of effort, and there is a big danger with it, that a lot of people say, well, oh, yeah, I told you so. All religions are the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Uh, But that's not what I'm saying at all. I think there are very big differences. Nevertheless, some uh, scholars recognize that there is an interaction between religions, and here there isn't enough scholarship done. There's got to be more scholarship on it. There are some Indian scholars, and they may not be right, but there are some Indian scholars who have suggested that before the rise of what we now know as Hinduism, there was a massive um, conversion of many Indians to Christianity, Mm. and that modern Hinduism rose as a reaction to Christianity, so that things like the Bhagavad Gita were written as a response to St. John's Gospel. Now, that may or may not be correct, but nobody's really looked at it in too much depth. And I think we've got to explore that because there are similarities. I know um, I was taught Buddhism by a man called Edward Konza, uh, who's one of the best-known Buddhist scholars of the 20th century and was a practicing Buddhist. And he believed very strongly that the uh, Lotus Sutra of the Good Law, which is a Buddhist uh, text, a very important Buddhist text, was influenced by Christianity, Mm. and that it was part of a Buddhist apologetic against Christianity. So uh, the possibility of a widespread evangelistic campaign in India might be possible. Um, This is supported by the fact, you see, that Hindu temples, for example, there's no record, uh, there's no archaeological remains of Hindu temples before the late 3rd and early 4th centuries AD. Now, Hindus claim that their tradition goes back 2000 BC, but the archaeological support for it is very weak. 
And I think that needs looking at more carefully. Yeah. Um, and there are all sorts of things like this that can be brought up and can be discussed. But it's going to take a lot of work, not just by congregations and pastors. We're going to have to have Christian scholars really probe these things. And the danger is that sometimes when people wander away from their own tradition, they convert to another one. And so that's something one's always got to be aware of. Um, there's a very good book by a man called um, Tucker Calloway, and it's an old book now written in the uh, 70s. It's called Zen Way, Jesus Way. And he says that you can look at Zen Buddhism, and he studied under D.T. Suzuki, um, the famous Zen scholar, and he said you can take Zen and it makes perfect sense. It's a very consistent system. And then you look at the Christian system, and it's perfectly consistent. It makes sense. And you've got to make a choice at some point when you understand both of these systems. They don't really mesh. Mm. There are very big differences. You've got to choose which really fits the world in which we live. And this brings me back to, I don't know if you've ever come across E.J. Carnell. He, He wrote a great book on Christian apologetics many years ago. And um, in his book, he said that two questions is asked. How does a religious system hold together intellectually? Does it, is it consistent? Does it meet with um, philosophical requirements for logic and so on? And how does it fit the world? And it's this fitting the world that I think is so very important, because it seems to me that Buddhism, whatever is good about it, and all the, the many good things in the Buddhist tradition, uh, but it doesn't really fit our experience of life. This denial of the self jars with our experience. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think we can reject it. Right. Um, but in doing so, one needs to be gentle and uh, see, you know, talking to a Buddhist, does this really fit? I mean, you know, you say you love your wife, but then your wife is just, uh, she's not really real. Uh, right. How do you, uh, you know, there's no person there. Doesn't that conflict with your beliefs? Whereas in Christianity, there is a person. Christianity affirms the person. Right. And this is the importance of, this is where things like the Trinity make sense. There is this personal core to the Godhead. And so we need to be aware of these things. Yes, yes, that's so true. Irving, it has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, brother. You've given us much to think about. And I do want to let our listeners know that we will have links to your newest book, Encountering World Religions, in the show notes. But we're also going to have links to many of the other works that you cited during this conversation. So if anyone's interested, they can go to the show notes for this episode and find out more information. But man, it's been so great to have you with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. I really enjoyed the interview. And in terms of links, I hope you put in a link to my previous book, Understanding World Religions, which goes into much more detail. And although it's Christian, it doesn't present an explicit Christian response. It simply tries to educate people into different world religions. Excellent. We'll include that as well. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you being with us. God bless you. God bless you, too. 
I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.